in a world gone mad. Only rationality and common sense can save it. It's Andrew and Jerry Save the World with your hosts, Andrew Langer and Jerry Rogers. And now, here's Andrew and Jerry. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Episode 11, Andrew and Jerry Save NATO. I am Andrew Langer. Jerry Rogers. And we've got a lot to unpack. Uh, Obviously, you know, the last time Jerry and I, we did our Facebook Live last week. Uh, We appreciate that. We wanted to, uh, Jerry and I both being busy, Jerry doing his fill-in duties at WBAL. I did some fill-in work on WCBM earlier this week. Uh, so it, it it delayed us getting on. There's so much going on in the world, Jerry. I, I yeah. think we ought to go directly, hold on, to our Ripped from the Headlines segment. Ripped from the Headlines. So how much is gas by you right now, Jerry? Uh, it is uh, $4.50. Good uh, Lord. $4.50 for uh, $87. Uh, it's $5.89 for uh for what my father would call high test but yeah, the high test 93 test, high test. yeah so uh, i was driving up drove into dc yesterday uh for a couple of meetings and i'm gonna get to something that happened in one of them in a minute and as we were driving up there's a place i like to go to it's an independent oil and natural gas dealership you know they they sell propane they sell um kerosene they sell gasoline they sell oil products um, it is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's Sunoco product, but it's an independent okay. dealership. I was going to ask and if they at, sold edibles, but I guess it's a different kind of place. Well, that would be a different kind of gas. Yeah. Station. <laughs> so, uh, as we were driving out, um, the, the gas was still three ninety nine a gallon, but they were not open. This is not a, uh, this is not a, uh, a, a 24 hour a day shop. And, um, and when we drove home last night, the plan was to do it on the way home last night. Gas had jumped up to 425. We're at about 430 for the most part here. Uh, a couple of stations a little higher, nothing really lower. Now, you and I have been calling for this uh, this ban on on Russian, uh, the purchasing of Russian oil and, and, and petroleum products. Uh, the Biden administration finally took our advice and did something about it this week. Sure. But they didn't do the next step. And and this is this is the problem is that they, you know, listen. Do you, any any one of a number of ways to go here? Um, to me, there is a determination in all of this that the administration is determined. A, they're determined to go down this road, as you said uh, about the green energy fiction, um, and they're they're determined not to change course on this. Let me hear your thoughts on this. Well, again, uh, climate change is an article of faith uh, for the lefts, the Democratic Party, for their religiosity, for their uh, expression of their of a, of a religious faith. Uh, the bottom line is this. And what bothers me about the president's uh, speech uh, announcement from a couple of days ago uh, is the dishonesty. Yeah. Uh, he he told untruths about his administration hindering uh, uh, domestic energy production. He went after the oil and gas, the American oil and gas industry, uh, accusing them preemptively, accusing them of price gouging, of don't take advantage. And and then he goes into this. Well, there are many thousands of acres or 
or uh, uh, oh, land leases. But what he doesn't, again, there are reasons why certain leases aren't being used and others are being used. And that has to do uh, with the science and the, uh, and the, uh, the, the production of how we, how we extract energy from the earth. And his, again, dishonest, but let me just say this and, and, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you. And that Thanks, is, I appreciate it. I, I, I want, I want our listeners to understand something. Uh, and that is the left's fetish of climate change led to the invasion of Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I'm sorry, guys, I, this is a very serious topic. For those of you who are listening and not watching, uh, my dog just jumped up, jumped up into my lap, So, uh, which which is what he does on, on occasion. He hasn't done this in a while. It's been very producer, stressful. Here. Producer so the, Charlie. The, absolutely, Jerry. The fetishization uh, of climate change and, and, and the issue of of uh, of um, of the articles of faith. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Sure. Go ahead. But I'll, and again, I'll just make this last point, and yeah. that is uh, so-called green energy uh, is is neither green nor can it produce energy. And, uh, you know, the, the electric car, number one, again, and Pete uh, Buttigieg. You know, yeah, we've been over this before. So, you know, I think we all understand the myth. I, I, I want to bring it back. It's interesting. I want to bring it back to something that I talked about on the air the other day. And we talk about myths. And and one of the things I talked about the other day, Jerry, was the idea that that the left has of trying to to bend. Well, we've talked about this in COVID, but but it's true in other areas, bending science to ideology. And this idea that science can change. You talk about when Jerry talks about the myth of green energy, what he's talking about is that there's a science that's involved here, and it's the science of how much energy it takes to produce a battery, the environmental degradative, degradative yeah. effects. Of mining for rare earth minerals, et cetera. Um, the, the amount, the how you produce the energy that is needed in, say, an electric vehicle. And, and I'm reminded- Never mind, by the way, the costs, right? Yes. I mean, the cost here, uh, Pete Buttigieg, again, almost in, in, a, in a mocking way, says, well, we can solve- uh, this problem and we can push back on the Russians if Americans, if all Americans purchase electric cars. And I heard Dan Kish and I had a Dan Kish from the American Energy Alliance and I had a, a conversation yes. the other day. Great, there was a great segment that you did filling in for uh, the Derek. Uh, Derek Hunter, the Derek Hunter but show. The average great cost segment. for an electric car, a new electric car right now is $63,000. Yeah. Right. And, and I told a story about having done the math over time when I was thinking about getting um, a new car getting, uh, an, you know, one with an internal combustion engine versus getting one with a hybrid engine versus getting one that was entirely electric and, and, and thinking about the cost savings over time, let alone, as, as Dan Kish pointed out, that the price of electricity for consumers has doubled. Right. You know, and that's that's a whole wild card. And all you should you, you should take that segment, by the way, just some some Andrew and Jerry personal business or business here. Take that segment. And see if you can podcast it and put it up on your show page. You know, some people do that. We'll put yeah. it up on the Andrew and Jerry Save the World page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but my one of the one of the instances that I was reminded of was uh, the what happened with VW uh, a couple of years back, the VW yes. diesel engine fraud. Right. Again, we're talking about science and we're talking about intention. So the what what the left was pushing for was a diesel engine that was uh, fuel efficient that polluted less. Uh, and um, um, and had and had as much power as a regular diesel engine that could do, 
right? So all of those things. Right. And the problem is that the way science works, and I remember our good friend, Jonathan Adler, explained to me years ago that the more fuel efficient a diesel engine is, the more, right, the more it can take the hydrocarbons within the uh, diesel fuel and convert it to energy, the more uh, uh, greenhouse gases would be released from it, right? It's just the way it works as you're, as you're engaging in the chemical, chemical equation. Right. And so when, when, when VW announced that it had uh, created this sweet spot where it could do all of those things, it could, it could be fuel efficient, it could pollute less and it could be just as powerful as a regular diesel engine. A lot of folks were left scratching their heads. How did they do it? Well, this was the proprietary uh, uh, VW uh, uh, technology and software. And what do we, what, what do we find out, Jerry? Well, it was, it was all a fraud. It was all a fraud. Yeah. They, they faked the science. Yes. Uh, well, again, faked the science. Yes. Someone did. And again, it's interesting. Uh, uh, climate change science has this problem uh, because it's not really a science debate or discussion, right? You know, infamously, famously, um, the host of Meet the Press, whose name escapes me right now. Um, Stephanopoulos? No, no, that's ABC. Uh, Ed, is it Ed? I don't know. I don't remember. Anyway, um, it'll come to me in a second. Uh, but the, the, you know, infamously, infamously, the uh, host of Meet the Press said he would no longer have on his program yes. anyone uh, who uh, uh, who clashes with the climate change settled science. But COVID, if nothing else, COVID teaches us that the science is never settled. It's mm-hmm. only settled if it's dogma. And if it's dogma, then it can't be science. Speaking of which, we're getting ready. We're go- we've got to go on a quick weekend trip next weekend. And let me ask you this, Jerry. So the FAA mask mandate is set to expire next Friday, the 18th. So does that mean that as of Friday, the 18th, Friday, the 18th will be the last day you have to wear masks? Or does it mean that Thursday, the 17th is the last day I'm going to have to wear masks? <laughs> this is very important to me because I'm flying on Friday. What do you what do you think? Is it, It's got to it's got to be I'm going to have to wear masks on Friday, but not on Sunday. I think so. Yeah, I would. I would. I it's would've... funny. I um. Uh, uh, it's, uh, by the way, his uh, the the host is Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd. That's anyway. It, of course. Yes. But uh, so I had a, I had a meeting yesterday. I was in meetings yesterday in the nation's capital. Had a great meeting uh, and dinner with some of the again most important contrarian voices on on health and science when it comes to COVID. But um, but I took an Uber. I took an Uber into the city, and. Uber still requires a, a, a face cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, uh, my, one of my kids was Ubering around DC yesterday herself, and and and, yeah, that was that was a, that was a thing. I mean, this is, but again, you know, I'm again, it's a difference to me between private actors and and. Well, and of course, yeah. Service. I mean, I wore the mask. And I didn't complain because it, it's sure. a private actor. But um, I do, I do, I do wish that uh, we can uh, collectively. Uh, get up to speed on the science. So it's funny because I went to a meeting yesterday where they, the host of the meeting sent me a memo or sent out an email to all the participants saying you have to show your vaccine cards. And because that's the policy of the building that they're in. Um, and, and so a, another colleague of ours, I won't name names said to me at another meeting, he said, well, I'm not going, I'm vaccinated, but I'm not showing anybody my card. It's not anybody's business. And then, of course, we show up at the meeting and we didn't have to show our cards, which was all very it's all very yeah. strange. It's all you know, it's all chaotic. I know this is a bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a sidewalk in terms of our topic. But I want to say one thing, though. 
Please. Uh, because um, because there, there is a lot of confusion about the science, about vac- vaccines, et cetera. So um, I had dinner. The, uh, the intellectual uh, main course last night was Dr. Uh, Marty McCary. Okay. And of course, this is a Johns, Hop- Johns Hopkins researcher. Uh, he's one of the uh, uh, most considered um, and, and uh, respected uh, physicians, researchers uh, in the world. And uh, I asked him straight out yesterday because he's very concerned about the public health science community. Sure. Uh, and he wants, he, he, he understands and wants it to regain trusts, trust. And he had some theories there I won't, or, or ideas there. I won't get into that. But I asked him straight out yesterday about the vaccines because, you know, the CDC is now, uh, it, first of all, I won't release certain data around vaccines. Uh, uh, but he said this, I, I asked him this, I, I have a seven-year-old, uh, Liam. And I said, Liam is healthy. Liam has no comorbidities or chronic conditions. Uh, his immune system is healthy. Should Liam get vaccinated? He said, absolutely not. There you go. He said, there is, I want to say this on the record, and, and I hope people are hearing me. He said, there are no instances in America, in the United States of America, of healthy children dying from COVID. Yes. Not one. Yeah. Zero. He said, there are, there are myriad examples, however, of healthy children dying from the vaccine. Interesting. And he said, we don't know yet. He said, we're not, we're not where we need to be. He said, he's pro-vaccine. He's vaccinated and boosted. He said, people should get the vaccine, especially those with comorbidities, especially older Americans. He said, but we have to take a pause with our children. And the irony is, is just today, the Washington Post uh, has an editorial saying, vaccinate your kids. A lot of high schools, a lot of grammar schools are mandating Sure. Uh, vaccinations. Uh, we should put I, a hold on it. I applied. I applied. I'll tell you, this is for, for adults. Uh, I I was, um, I'll say this. I apply, <laughs> I'll be as oblique <laughs> as possible. No, 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 no. You can't. A, it's a I podcast. A, you got to say it. an application package for a, a radio gig. Oh, okay. At a, at, a, at a station I love, a station I have genuine affection for with people I have genuine affection for. Uh, and one of the requirements of that application is that you, is that you be fully vaccinated. So, you know, am I is, one of those? Uh, I'm not going to say which radio station, for. Jerry. You know, but you, I listen. You are you are an esteemed colleague of mine that I have great affection for. Uh, to <laughs> say the least, that goes without saying, whether or not you're at this station or not. Um, I do want to shift gears. We got a couple of minutes before. By the way, we're bringing on our our guest in a few minutes uh, for our expert advice segment. His name is Paul Post. He is a uh, professor of political science and international relations at the University of Chicago. Uh, As this, you know, I was going to make a conspiracy theory statement, which is we are going to be uh, quietly seeing more information about COVID vaccines, uh, the deeper and wider this crisis in Central Europe gets, um, because we are doing our rip from the headlines segment. You're right about that. I wanted to play this uh, this clip from uh, the vice president of the United States, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, She is um, uh, speaking this morning in Poland. Uh, and here's what, uh, let me, let me get here. Here's, here's what she had to say. We're only going to play about the first 30, 40 seconds of it, but this is important. The UN has set up a process by which there will be a review and investigations. And we will of course participate as appropriate and necessary. Hey, before we get to the next part of this, Jerry, did it look like as she was moving her head that she was trying to signal for them to move the teleprompter a little bit faster? 
Oh, <laughs> yes. Now that you mentioned it, yes. Okay. But I, no, I, I didn't I'm pick up on, up on the stuff. You know, we we didn't have a we didn't do a show after the State <laughs> of the Union. I came in for some crap because of my commentary about the weird shimmy gesture. Well, yes, and, and, but let me say this also to, yeah. to, to, to again to confirm, she has odd movements and mannerisms i mean she sometimes it looks like her hands or arms someone is moving them for her uh they don't they don't they don't the, the movements don't go along maybe she has with that her, the rhythm of her speech of, part of dyskinesia i keep seeing on uh on tv the ads or maybe it. like senator kennedy from uh from louisiana That's, said oh, okay. uh senator kennedy from louisiana said uh when asked about her comments and her mannerisms he simply said I don't speak stupid. Well, here, here we go to the to the, the word sal, the real world sal part of the song. <laughs> but we all watched the television coverage of just yesterday. That's on top of everything else that we know and don't know yet based on what we've just been able to see. And because we've seen it or not doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But that we know and we don't know this. This is the, that we know or don't know whether or not we've seen it. We know it's happened. I mean, it's. It, it listen again when you when you care to send the very best send uh, <laughs> send the vice president of the United States. I, I mean it, it is it is a real shame. We we um she's in, she's intellectually challenged. Let's yeah. just say that. Well, I mean she's out of her depth, and it's it, it. And I will say it is it is terribly sad in that regard. You know what I'm doing? I'm going to open this up here. That works. That because I'm not going to actually I can't do it that way. Sorry as I talk to myself as I as I edit on the fly. Um, Jerry, you know, we, we haven't done this yet. We probably should have, but in terms of our conversation with professor post, what's number one on your mind with him? I don't understand. And I want to wrap my head around, uh, why NATO isn't doing more, uh, to, um, to aid, uh, to help, uh, the Ukraine's Ukrainians and also to push, to push back on Putin. I want to I want to get to something that that he and I talked about. This came up in a, in a meeting yesterday. Uh, someone from a, a relatively new organization, I won't say who, uh, someone who claims foreign policy bona fides, got up and said that what Ukraine has to do is negotiate, and one of the things that they should agree to is that they remain forever neutral. I want to, you know, I, I had a started to have a conversation with Professor Post uh, about that issue, about the issue of self determination. We're going to get into that. And in fact, Jerry, I think that's a perfect segue. Let's sure. now go to expert advice. Expert advice. Welcome back. This is the expert advice segment of Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Uh, so glad to be joined with our uh, by our expert today. Uh, his name is Paul Post. He is the uh, he is an associate professor uh, at uh, the University of Chicago. He's also their director of graduate studies. He's a longtime expert in international relations, teaches in that subject as well. Um, he is uh, at Chicago, as I said. He has his PhD from the University of Michigan, his undergraduate degree from the University of Miami. He's uh, won awards. Uh, and and he came to my attention in a very detailed thread, and we're going to talk about this, uh, talking about one of his uh, his colleagues at Chicago, the esteemed uh, Dr. Uh, Mearsheimer. Um, and we'll get into what Dr. Mearsheimer had to say in a minute, Paul. But let's let's start here, which is how how did just how did we get here? I mean, you know, here we are. We're now almost three weeks into this particular conflict. There was some question as to whether or not it was actually going to happen. 
but but why now? Why January, February of, of 2022, uh, as opposed to at any other point in time over the last eight years? Great question. And I think this is the thing that most perplexed a lot of experts, especially people in my field, because we're really good at like pinpointing what you could call the macro processes and saying like, yes, these, these things are, these conditions are in place. It seems likely there could be a conflict. And indeed, in the case of Ukraine and Russia, folks have been predicting that there was going to be a conflict between these two since the end of the Cold War. That's something else that I had highlighted on Twitter, which just I went through and showed like all of these experts going back to the early 1990s saying, look, if there's going to be a major flashpoint between somewhere in Europe following the end of the Cold War, Ukraine and their relations with Russia is a great candidate. But your question is a great one of like, but why now? Why yeah. specifically this time? And I think, first of all, we can shorten it down from the 30 some years since the end of the Cold War to just the past eight years as you have by saying that obviously going back to 2014 was when Russia had invaded Crimea, had taken the Crimean pen Peninsula. And ever since then, there's been, if you want to call it low level conflict, especially low level compared to what we're seeing right now, there's been conflict in the Eastern provinces of Ukraine against Russian-backed separatists, and then, of course, against Ukrainian armed forces supported by NATO. And if you go back to, and it seems like a lot of people have forgotten about this, but if you go back to the first impeachment of President Trump, sure. it was indeed over this issue about the United States giving supplies and arms to Ukraine. So that's how long this has been going on. Can you talk a little bit, because I, I, I had a conversation the other day with someone who was not aware of what had happened and this is important, what had happened in Ukraine prior to the late winter and early spring of 2014, I don't know if you're familiar with it or you can talk about it, but what happened in Ukraine with the change in governance and the move, there was a move towards the EU and then the sudden shift towards Russia, and then you can either call it a revolution or a coup. Talk a little bit about that. So this, the main event that people point to is the what was called the Euromaidan uh, protest that took place in Kyiv and really were countrywide. And this was about wanting to remove from office a leader of Ukraine who was more favored and supported Russia because there was a lot of movement. There's a lot of um, support within Ukraine to move more towards the West as opposed to towards the East. And in particular, it wasn't even about NATO. It was about the EU. The thing that was on the table was about Ukraine becoming a European Union member. And the leader who was in power was, of course, opposed to that because he was more aligned with Russia. But there was a lot of support within the Ukrainian population to go the other direction, go towards the West. And these protests were in large part about that. And of course, he was then deposed from office, left, went into exile in February of 2014. And then immediately afterwards is when Ukraine was or when Ukraine was invaded, or specifically the Crimean Peninsula was invaded by Russia and taken control by Russia. Yeah, and and that's what a lot of folks. I don't think a lot of folks recognize this. And from what I understood, is that the former president had been negotiating with the EU. Then there was a sudden change of heart. Then he flees to Russia of all places via Crimea, uh, and then they and then they go and they move in. Jerry, I know you wanna you wanna jump in here. I mean, we wanna start to we we wanna start to go down the road and talk about NATO. Well, and go ahead, Jerry. Let me ask this. And again, I, I'm going to ask questions 
I think that our listeners might have. And 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 here's one. And again, for, forgive me if it's if it's a simple question, but um, why hasn't Russia entertained the idea of joining the EU or NATO? Well, not, no, 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 NATO. I understand why not. Yeah. I mean, but but the EU though. I mean, for economic reasons, for trade reasons, for uh, and also uh, again because. Uh, you know, uh, 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 Russia is the largest, right? The largest country sure. in Europe. So, I mean, again, is is that a, is that a, a silly question? It's not a that silly question. Not a silly question. Okay. That is not a silly question. And actually, um, as Andrew just mentioned about with NATO and, and both of you talk about, like NATO was also on the table at one point. Right. Um, so, I mean, to go back a little bit, when the Cold War ended, this was something that was kind of on the table was like, what's the future of the relationship between NATO and Russia? And one option was, well, could Russia ever become a member of NATO, which you can imagine would be a little bit awkward, given that NATO was kind of formed to counter Russia. Right. But instead, what they ended up doing was forming what was called the NATO-Russia Council, which was essentially like a separate entity where they could have summits and allow for conversation between Russian officials, NATO officials. Um, but that eventually fell apart. And I think it fell apart in great measure due to the broader, um, if you will, sentiment within the Russian foreign policy elite, which is to not try to develop these ties with NATO. And that relates to the EU because the EU is also viewed as an entity that is counter to Russian interests. So what do I mean by that? Well, one way to think about it is ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union in, you know, depending on what date you want to put on it, but you could say the end of 1991, yeah. and then all of these republics that were part of the Soviet Union become independent, that includes Ukraine, the Baltic states, Moldova, Georgia, etc. They become independent. There then starts to be used this phrase within the Russian foreign policy elite called the near abroad. So they started referring to all of these republics as like the near abroad, basically indicating that this is Russia's sphere of influence. This is an area that Russia has always had influence, needs to have influence to basically secure Russia. Because if you look at their history, sure. Russia has had a long history of like, yeah. you know, being invaded and whatnot. All, all on the surface, reasonable. Yeah. Yes. I mean, just, just like just like the U.S., uh, what happens in Central America and South America is of yeah. is of special interest to 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 U.S. Uh, U.S. interests. So it makes sense. Yes, and this is actually goes to the heart of something we can start to dig into a little bit, which is the theory that was made very prominent by my colleague John Mearsheimer of offensive yeah. realism. And, and it basically, and the key thing to keep in mind here, and especially with folks in my line of work, is explanation is not justification. Of course, right? yeah. You know, right. that we're trying to help explain what's going on. And so to this point, as you're bringing up, Jerry, it's like, look, if you think about how major, power, major powers operate, they want to maintain control within their neighborhood. And so the U.S. is the prime example of this, whether it was Western expansion during the 19th century, the Monroe Doctrine. Sure. These are ideas that the U.S. has had of like, we should continue to have influence within our region. And so you can understand why Russia would also have that perception. And I think the concern on the part of certain members of the Russian foreign policy elite, definitely shared by Putin, is that EU membership and NATO membership for these countries undermines that. 
undermines their ability to be able to have influence in that region because sure. now they're going to start listening more to the Western European countries so, and the U.S. So let, 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 me, let, let me ask you this, because, again, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this conversation and, and I want to know what does Russia fear? Like, what do they have to fear from uh, from Western Europe, from the United States? It's not as if America, right, uh, wants to somehow uh, occupy or or set up a puppet regime in Russia, Germany, Italy, France, the UK. They don't want to do they don't want to do these things. Poland doesn't. So, like, it's almost as if, again, from the the, the novice listening is that uh, Putin has created a boogeyman. And uh, that, me, that doesn't exist. Let me let me add to this, Paul, before you answer the question, because I, I would like you in your answer to touch on the 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 third Rome theory um, and the schism between the Russian Orthodox and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. But talk, answer Jerry's question. And if that del delves into it, then please do. I think that there's it's, it's a terrific question, because this is something you sit there and you go, especially if you're like a member of NATO if you're an official, a diplomat for NATO or the U.S. government, you're like, why, why should they be all upset about this? We're just trying to spread democracy. Yeah. We're just trying to secure Europe. We're just trying to have peace. So I think that there's two potential answers to this. So the first answer is, and this is something where people have pointed to Putin, but again, this is not unique to him, but we've definitely seen this within his words, is this desire to recreate the Soviet empire. Right. right. And and he holds this vision, if not even just the Soviet Empire, but even the Russian Empire, going back to the 19th century pre-Bolshevik revolution. I mean, this sure. is this is a vision that certain people have. So obviously, if these countries are part of, of the EU and NATO, that, that goes off the table. So if that's your interest, that would be one reason this would be perceived as a threat. The second reason goes into something that is a, a famous idea from a scholar who actually just died late last year, Bob Jervis. Who was at Columbia University. He wrote this book in the 1970s called Perception and Misperception in International Politics. I think and I went to the, high school with his daughters. Oh, really? <laughs> go, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm no, looking at, he, I want to check that out. But keep, keep talking I, about hey, So I went, I went to, I went to uh, pre-K nursery school with Frankie Valley's uh, kids. There, there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Six degrees, right? Um, so, so, but he, you know, he, he was famous for a lot of things, but one of these ideas was this notion yeah. of, that he put forward in this book, Perception and Misperception in International Politics. And what he talks about is exactly kind of this phenomenon of you take actions that you know are benign. You're like, look, this is, we're just trying to secure other countries. We're not trying to cause any harm. And then you assume that everybody else understands that. But if you saw somebody else taking the exact same action, you wouldn't necessarily perceive it as benign. But what he talks about is there is this, because of the nature of anarchy in the international system, the fact that there is no, no one you can turn to to help sort out disputes and so forth, you inherently can create conditions that lead to kind of this misperception, right? And it can happen over and over again. And so that's the other explanation here is that as NATO expanded, they were like, well, we're not trying to do anything to antagonize Russia, to your point. But right. that doesn't mean that Russia is going to perceive it that same way. And, and, but again, and, but again, again, I'm sorry, Andrew. It's all right, Jerry. Does, does Russia 
believe that NATO will invade Russia? Well, well time out, time out for a second, Jerry. Hold on, because I want to, I want to, I want to sort of answer that question in advance and, and see if my answer is the right one, Paul. It's not that they're concerned about NATO invading Russia. What they're concerned about is Western influences bespoiling the purity of the Russian people, whether it is this religious schism and what happened in Ukraine with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church or Western values, the decadent values of the West coming in. Am I am I right there, Paul? Is that is that sort but, of where but, we're going but, here? But, but again, but here's my disconnect on this. And that okay. is um, in, in, in my mind, and, and, and we've seen this over the last decade, uh, and that is Russia is is Western in, in, in a sense. Right. It is. It's it, I mean, it's affinities. It's history is tied to Europe. And so this idea, I don't understand this idea that that Russia uh, uh, somehow is is alien to to Europe, to, you, you know, and, and especially if we're talking about uh, czarist Russia. Right. Where uh, this was uh, they, they were a dominant, a dominant force in Europe. And so. Um, let him let him answer. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, again, I'm yeah, thinking. No, no, I'm, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm talking to this think, is why we're having I mean? this discussion. Yeah. No, there's so much to unpack here. So yeah. I do think that what what first of all, there's a couple of things that both of you were touching on yeah. that there is this push and pull within Russia itself and always has been. You can go back to Peter the Great yes. when he established St. Petersburg. And part of his goal of establishing St. Petersburg was he saw what Paris looked like. And he said, we need to look like that because we want to signal that we are more Western, that we yeah. are part of this club. But that doesn't mean that that was uniformly held. And there's always been this perception, not just within Russia, but also within Western Europe, that Russia's not quite <laughs> like the rest of us, right? Sure. And part of that is driven by fear, the size of Russia, um, Russia's involvement in wars throughout the century. So this is, there's always been this push and pull within Russia and within Western Europe of Russia's West, but they're not. And then that's one area of it. And it can overlay then with things, Andrew, that you're talking about, such as, you know, religious differences, Orthodox Church schisms within the Orthodox Church, Orthodox Church versus Catholicism. I mean, these the, there's this element to it that overlays. There's cultural elements of it that sure. overlay it. But fundamentally, it does come down to this idea of does Russia and do in particular when we say Russia, not even so much the people of Russia, but the elites in Russia and the foreign policy elites in Russia, do they fully trust the West? And because of that, and you know, that's one question, that's an open question you talk about, do they trust us? I think we have an answer for that right now, they don't, but that's one thing they've had to face. The other issue is then that because, and perhaps because they don't fully trust the West, because of their history of invasion, you can go back to Napoleon, for example, sure. that there's always been this interest in wanting to dominate their region. But again, this is not unique to Russia, this is a, phenomena that my colleague John Mearsheimer would say all major powers have is wanting to control their region for their own security because of the fact that they don't trust who their neighbors are. They don't trust their neighbors a little bit further west of them. And so I think that that, that fundamentally gets to a key issue. All right, Andrew, I have one more question and then, and then no, I'll no let worries, you. No worries. So, so the United States and, and its allies uh, up until recently uh, had a uh, kind of a foreign policy point of view. And I would argue that uh, since um, 
the rise of progressivism in the United States. Uh, so really, when uh, 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 I mean, 10 years or 12, 15 years uh, when the Obama administration uh, came into power uh, again, they they uh, they we went from a uh, understanding that America should be able to fight on two fronts, climate change. Uh, the issue of climate change uh, became a foreign policy uh, priority. And so I, I say this to ask this, ask this question, that is, if I'm Putin and I'm watching the West, the Germans, uh, the Americans, uh, the British, I'm like, let them just do their climate change nonsense. And I could quietly increase my influence here uh, with Russian oil, with energy, uh, with uh, uh, economics and trade. Uh, instead, he chooses war. It just it, it doesn't out, make sense I, to me. And I, uh, well, okay, yeah, no, I'll, I'll get to that. We'll get to the other question next. Yeah. But go ahead, sorry. Paul. Yeah, so I, <laughs> you're touching on something that, of course, is a key debate. Not just I think that there's some validity to what you're saying there because I think that this also informs why there's um, a debate within the United States about what's the most appropriate approach to foreign policy um, that, you know, there are, so we'll take climate change, for example. So there's definitely people who will say, we have to do everything possible from a foreign policy standpoint, international cooperation standpoint, to try to reduce emissions, to um, help the environment. There's, there's that, there's one camp like that. Of course, there's another camp that's like, yeah, forget about this. This isn't either, this isn't happening. We're, you know, ignoring that happening, or there's just nothing we can do about it. So don't worry about it. There's, there's that other camp. And I think then in between where I think most people lie is there's a view that, you know, if, if, I mean, what's the harm of trying to do things to reduce admission, especially if it advances technology, so on and so forth. Um, but what they will say, and I think that this is, a, this is the line of people who I know were very much opposed to like the Kyoto Protocol when it was first signed <laughs> in the late 1990s. The cost of Kyoto, Andrew Langer. Remember yes, that I book? Remember. I remember yes, the book. I'm yeah. sorry. And no, no, no problem. And and then also with the Paris Accord is to say, you know, this, even if we think this is a good idea to do, why is China not held to the same standards for sure, this? Exactly. What about Russia? That it's like, this is going to put us at a disadvantage in great power competition if we're the only ones who are being held to this standard. And I think that that's more of the fundamental debate is not even so much of whether something should be done, but can something be done? in a world of great power competition. And then to, that goes into your point of if, and you know, I don't know if President Xi is looking at it this way in China or if Putin is looking at it this way in Russia, but if they sit there and say, look, they're distracted with these other issues, sure. I'm going to use that distraction to either develop my economy, build myself up, build up my military. That's an argument, of course, people have made, not even just about Russia, but about China as well. Sure, of course. And, of course. And, and it's exacerbated, Paul, right? Because when you have these two countries, both China and Russia, and we know for a fact that part of their foreign policy is to drive chaos and and division and, and dissent and sort of to turn a, a nation like America against one another, these it gets magnified, doesn't it? So this is this is this is exactly right. That yeah. if you if you view well, one way to, to answer this is to look at it like this, that you can absolutely draw a line, a connection, I think. Now, whether it's a direct connection, meaning they've actually coordinated on this, I don't know. We yeah. may never know. But you can definitely see where over the past two years, two and a half years, both Russia 
and China, and maybe because they've learned from each other, have been taking steps to kind of push against what some folks call the liberal international order, the rules-based yeah. order. You know, in the case of China, you look at the conflict, active conflict they have in the Himalayas with India. There has been an ongoing conflict. They chose to reactivate that uh, in the past two years. Um, obviously, the policies they took towards Hong Kong, sure. if you look at the, you know, renewed um if you will, designs towards Taiwan, of course, you know, heightening of their tensions, uh, territorial tensions with Japan. So yes, there's, there's been this heightening of kind of revisionist policies being pursued by China. And then if you couple that with what you're seeing from Russia, then yes, you do see where these two countries seem to be pushing against the very rules-based order, liberal international order that is sure. led by, or at least you know, at least verbally supported by the U.S. And so in that sense, that's another, I think that that's a useful point to kind of for from a macro perspective in terms of thinking about Ukraine rather than just focusing on sure. Ukraine, which is important, but to think about it in this broader context of these kind of, of revisionist policies. Let me, let me yeah. shift back. Let me shift back to what Jerry was talking about in terms of trust. You and I talked a little bit about this on Tuesday, which is, you know, we, because we, we view NATO historically as a purely defensive organization. And I want to get into the issue of self-determination and Ukrainian neutrality also in a second and what Russia's demanding. But, you know, we, we view NATO, we think of NATO as, okay, it's only, you know, it's only going to engage in military action uh, if one of the NATO member nations is attacked. But then there is this 1999 Yugoslavia air campaign. And one wonders then, it also leads into this idea of Russia mistrusting uh, NATO Talk a little bit about that and, and also why it really isn't inapplicable here. But before you do, let me inter interject this, and that is, and Andrew, this is something you and I have talked about, and that is my understanding of, of, of the NATO alliance, its mission isn't just the Article 5, you know, if one is attacked, we're all attacked, but rather stability in each member uh, very country's good point. region. And so, therefore, if there's instability in a region, and NATO has done this, and you're and, and you're going to talk, you're going to comment on it in a second. Uh, if there's instability in a region, NATO has historically acted, has been proactive, yeah. not just reactive. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So your your last point there, Jerry, I think is a really useful way to kind of then think about the Kosovo campaign, right. um, but to also think about Libya in 2011, sure. uh, which of course was also a NATO operation. To mm. also think about. Um, NATO's operations in Afghanistan, to also think about just NATO expansion itself, right? That these are all predicated, not so much on an Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, which, by the way, the one thing that always gets lost in this conversation is the second part of that clause, which is, and each member will respond in the manner they see fit, Good so that's point. always a key part of Article Five. <laughs> yes, <laughs> is that you know you could Amen. just stand up there and be like, okay, go go go. We're, we're, we're going to send them. We're, we're selling umbrellas. We're, we're, send, selling we're sending umbrellas. umbrellas. Yes. Yes. No. This is it's absolutely a live issue when it comes to NATO. It's okay. Article Five has been invoked. What's say everybody going to do? And so that's uh, that's another issue. But setting that aside, I think you're exactly right that it's like NATO was created, and I've researched this and, and written about this, about like the process bringing about NATO. And I do think that there is some validity to the phrase that is often attributed to Lord Ismay, who was the first 
um, secretary general of NATO. And what he said was, he said that NATO, or at least this is attributed to him, right? We don't know exactly. They always say, you know, is it apocryphal that he said this? But that NATO is about keeping the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. Wow. And a lot of, you know, and a lot of times we only focus on the Russians out part, right? And obviously right now that's a live issue, the Russians being out. But the reality is that that German down was also very important. And to broaden that out, what that meant was preventing conflict within Europe itself, preventing the member states from feeling insecure. And so that's why it was so important when the Cold War ended. Some people sat there and said, oh, well, NATO should disband now because Russia's been defeated. This is only about Russia. And they forgot that, well, no, now suddenly Germany is reunified. And a lot of the other European countries, especially France, were like, wait a minute, wait, wait a unified Germany? We know how this movie ends. It doesn't end well for everybody, <laughs> yes. right? So, so there were a lot of countries very nervous about that. And so NATO needed to stay intact to kind yeah. of ensure that these countries felt secure. That was, some, that was part of what informed bringing Poland in, bringing in the Czech Republic, bringing in Hungary, because these were also countries that there was concerns that they might seek to maybe try to acquire their own nuclear weapons if they're left outside of the NATO sure. umbrella, because they're like, look, we've got this unified Germany now, right? So I think that this, I'm bringing this up just to say that the, the general security of all the European countries and ensuring that they feel secure has always been a key part of NATO. And that's kind of what's embodied by that notion of keeping the Germans down. And that's where then the Kosovo cam or campaign fits in, right? Sure. Is that now you have the European countries saying, this is a huge crisis on our border. It's leading to refugees. This is, I mean, first of all, then there's just the whole humanitarian issue. It's ethnic cleansing. We have to do something about this. And so that's something that informs why then they take that policy. That's so, very so interesting. Because uh, you make a point. Look, I've watched yeah. CNN, uh, uh, Fox, uh, every channel I'm reading, every newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think, again, you're the only person I can think of who has made this right argument. And that is maybe we brought in these other states like Poland as a counterbalance to Germany. Yeah. As opposed to encroaching on Russia. And this is a part of the conversation that it hasn't happened and unless I've missed it. Um, and, I, and, I, and it's, and it's, it's fascinating to me because, because, you know, we don't forget because we're of a certain age, but my kids, Germany is, is like this, you know, this progressive, wonderful Very place yeah. of, of, you know, of whatever. Right. And uh, it's it's chocolate and it's, it, anyway. So I'm, I'm rambling here, but that this is an excellent point. So so with that in mind, I mean, as we're talking about NATO, because I know Jerry wants to ask you about about Poland and planes. Well, we uh, haven't touched on the specifics of what of what's happening in in, 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 in front of us, you know, as we no, speak. But, but, but I'm about I'm about to get there because. Yeah. We talk about this, and then I want to talk about the 1994 agreement that the international community made with Ukraine in order for them to give up their nuclear weapons. So talk about that and what that sort of implies in terms of, in terms of what, if there is any kind of an international obligation or a NATO obligation, uh, talk a little bit about that. So the 1994 agreement, uh, there's 
really two key elements to this. Plus there's just the meta point. And the meta point is that this is yet another thing, actually something that was also pointed out by John Mearsheimer back in the 1990s, where he said, this is a bad idea. Now, what was it that this agreement did? Well, keep in mind that during the Cold War, both the United States and the Soviet Union are acquiring massive levels of nuclear weapons, right? And where are they basing these? They're basing these, of course, throughout their territory. Well, in the case of the Soviet Union, basing them throughout their territory means also basing them in these republics that at the time were part of the Soviet Union. And the majority of these were based in Ukraine. And then suddenly, once the Soviet Union collapses, and they weren't just in Ukraine, also a large number were based in Kazakhstan as well. Um, and, but once the Soviet Union collapses, suddenly Ukraine is sitting there with a stockpile of nuclear weapons, right? Wow. And this is then what informed the debate. And this was actually something we now have the documents where this is actually in many ways, one of the great successes of the Bill Clinton administration was working with Yeltsin to try to cooperatively, and they did, Russia and the United States worked together very closely to ensure that all of these weapons were transferred back to Russia rather than suddenly having 10 new nuclear powers in the world. No, like, okay, this would be can I ask you a question there? Yeah. Why transfer these weapons back to Russia at the time and not just destroy them? Question. It's a good question. Um, I don't know if that was even something that was on huh. the table. My understanding is that you could, well, think about it like this from Russia's perspective. It's, it's like, wait a minute, no, these are our weapons. Why would we want to destroy sure. them? We want them back, right? Yeah, because they and, would, but, but at the time, right, the U.S. was, uh, was negotiating from a position of strength that the, the former Soviet Union, the, you know, Russia didn't have. But regardless, it's neither here nor there. Actually, we'll, it, we'll actually, write... <laughs> it leads into another question, though, Paul, which has come up. And then we, we got we to talk about this other thing. <laughs> but, but why... Why was it, was it ever, was there ever any question as to whether or not Russia should be the successor country on the UN Security Council once the Soviet Union fell? That's a great question. Why? Yes. Why did Russia get the seat? I mean, this is something that you, yeah. Paul, we should have had you, we should have had you wear a wizard hat and have a crystal ball. But 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 the funny thing is, uh, Paul, is that Andrew and I, like, we'll have these questions. I'll call in the middle of the day. Like, oh, yes. Why? Why is Russia on the Security Council? Why? Why is it Ukraine or why or whatever? Or why? Or why, why is, is it this, India? You know, yeah, exactly right. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go, go, ahead. go ahead, sir. Yeah, no, no, no. So I'll, I'll tell you, this is something that I've been seeing like a lot of uh, colleagues and people who are like experts in international law have been dealing with and so forth, talking about like, how does this work? Because it's not straightforward. I mean, if you want to go back, like the other big controversy with the UN Security Council seat was when it used to be China. Uh, China seat yes. used to be held by uh, Taiwan. And then, of yep. course, it shifted to the People's Republic of China. Um, there was even a point when China was going through its revolution. There was actually a point where it was considered that maybe we should just shift that over to India. And um, there was discussions about that. So there's always the potential for these for these shifts to happen. The best answer that I've seen is that the reason why it was just kind of taken for granted that Russia would be the successor state for it. Besides the fact that Russia was the largest of the republics and the capital, of course, was in Russia and everything like that versus the capital of the Soviet Union being in Ukraine or Kazakhstan, was that you want to make sure that Russia is still adhering 
to the arms control nature sure. of the UN. And the best way to do that is to make sure that yes, they yes, are yes, still, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Makes, yeah, they of are course, still a yeah. permanent member. So that was kind of, so there's, yeah. <laughs> this is why I don't teach. <laughs> because <laughs> that, 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 now, in, in, in two sentences, you made very clear as it cleared up my confusion, but no, it's it, and it's, thank yeah, and I and I appreciate that. So let's let's shift gears to the proximate issue, which is we have this invasion. Uh, we have we have Russia having invaded. They're on the outskirts of Kiev. They've been on the outskirts of Kiev. Um, Russia has put up a uh, put up out on Monday morning a list of demands. Uh, four demands, right? Uh, number one, the Ukrainian people need to lay down their arms. Uh, number two, they need to declare in their constitution that they will remain forever neutral, never join NATO. Three, they need to give up uh, uh, any claims to Crimea. And four, they need to give up these territories in the east, the Donbass, and they're now independent republics. I was at a meeting yesterday and a, an, a colleague of, of mine who claims to have great credentials in foreign policy, actually has great credentials in foreign policy, uh, stood up in this meeting and said, well, Ukraine needs to negotiate and they need to they need to swear in their constitution that they're going to that's the outcome is they have to remain neutral. And I and I sat there and I was going to I didn't want to take up time in this meeting to yell at this person and say that this is this is inane. Um, uh, but but talk a little bit about these these four demands and why at least the certainly the first two are untenable and then talk about whether or not the second two are, are tenable or untenable. What these demands point to is a reason why I am not optimistic about this conflict ending anytime soon. Um, and indeed, at you know the morning that we're recording this, they just completed some talks in yes. in Turkey, which didn't go anywhere, right? And and so this is, and that's not surprising. And the reason why is because any type of offer or demands that Russia would find acceptable and, and specifically Putin would find acceptable for ending this conflict. I can't even moderate demands, because keep in mind, these are more moderate demands compared to just taking over the entire country, right? Sure. But even these more moderate demands, I can't see where someone like Zelensky is going to say, sure, I'll sign off on that, right? And moreover, I can't see where he would be advised to sign on off on yeah. that, because I could see where like Joe Biden would say to him, like, look, you sign <laughs> off on this, that sends a bad precedent. But, that you could start a conflict and get what you want. But let me ask you this, though. Uh, and again, I'm being cute, so forgive me. But why couldn't the Ukrainians say, you know what? Yeah, we agreed to all of this. And just like that 1994 agreement was torn up, no one came to our defense. Once the troops leave, we join NATO. Or, we, or you know, again, uh, make the agreement and lie, because that's how this is what Putin does. Well, that's, like that's one argument, and that is that is the fundamental nature of of international <laughs> of international law. International is treaties. I actually right. there's a there's a famous quote by an international lawyer. I think he made this quote like in the '80s, so forth. But he said, "International law is to law what professional wrestling is to wrestling." <laughs> Love it. It's great. Uh, but but there, there is this again to, to follow up on this, and that is, look, uh, I I don't. Uh, take uh, at face value all the images in the reporting because we don't know. We really yes. don't know. And Jerry and I had a huge. Jerry and I had a huge, several huge arguments about this the last couple of weeks. Well, yeah, but, but, but we just we just don't know. I mean, uh, but however, if 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 on their face these reports are to be accepted, right? There are hospitals 
and there are um, civilians uh, being slaughtered or being uh, targeted. There's a case to be made that Putin is a is a is a war criminal. And, and so therefore, you know, why doesn't the U.N. move again to uh, uh, to I guess my point is this. I think the sanctions have been weak up to this point. Um, I'm glad that we're going to um, cut off Russian imports, but it, energy imports. It took 12 days. Um, we still haven't dealt with all the oligarchs and the resources, even the swift banking system. There are still it's, it's not it's not a complete uh, uh, a banning of, of, of Russian entities and interests. I, I, there's a war happening. I don't understand why the and this gets to the you know, uh, I don't understand why uh, we aren't doing more short of sending troops to Ukraine of 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 pushing back on Putin. Does it make sense, that question? Yes, it makes, it makes total sense. And the best answer that I can give, and I've given this a couple other times because I do think it fully applies in this case, is that oftentimes in foreign policy, you're only faced with bad options. Mm. And the goal is to pick the least bad option. Yeah. And I think that especially, so another way to put it is um, recently I had said that the only way Russia leaves Ukraine is if Russia decides to leave Ukraine. Right. right. But this is not going to be a Persian Gulf 1991 type scenario where the UN authorizes a massive coalition led by the United States that goes in to, in that case, Kuwait and pushes Saddam Hussein's forces out of Kuwait. There is going to be no pushing out this time. The only way yeah. they leave is when they decide to leave, either because they're just tired of fighting or because of some agreement or whatnot. The what that means, though, is that that very much limits your options. Then if you are not going to go in and you're not going to use it. And of course, you have to ask, why is that? Well, the reason why is because unlike Saddam Hussein in 1991, yes. <laughs> Russia has a massive stockpile of nuclear right. weapons. So let's just say yeah. that that is what it is. Right. It's no one wants to start World War Three. And that goes then to. I know something you've been eager to want to talk about, about these jets, right? yes. the jets that could have been transferred. Pulled. This is exactly why. So I was, um, I've been saying that the one country that I'm concerned about this being escalated to, it's actually not the Baltic states. Because some people were like, well, if there's a NATO country to be attacked, it would be the Baltic states because they were also former Soviet republics. I'm like, no, it's not the Baltic states because it could have been the Baltic states if Ukraine had gone smoothly. Right. And yes. it's like, oh, OK, this is easy. Then he gets kind of emboldened like Hitler. And it's like, sure. oh, I can go next. I can go next. That's obviously not the case. Instead, where I became concerned was that if he starts to get bogged down, he says, well, where's all this assistance coming from? Where's all where the, where's the resistance being supported? Where are the refugees going? And he's going to sit right. there and he's going to they're going to Poland. It's coming from Poland. So suddenly you start taking shots at Poland. Right. You don't try to invade Poland, but you may be in the case of like aircraft leaving an air base in Poland. You can easily, it's only like a couple minutes for your jets to go and attack that airbase and come back over Ukrainian territory. So, or even Belarus. So that's where I think the Biden administration recognized that. And that's why there was a quick kind of like backtracking on this, that it's like, there's no way that we can do this in a way that couldn't run the risk of escalation. And that is yeah. Russia actually attacking one of our NATO allies. But, and again, it, 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 and I, I understand. But it begs the question, then we really can't stop Putin, period, 
Because if we're afraid of escalation, if we're afraid of of him uh, engaging, you know, uh, nuclear weapons and, and not necessarily blowing up New York City, but using nuclear weapons uh, in the battlefield, you know, uh, 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 strategically tactical nuclear weapons, then we I mean, then we just we may as well just do this and say, eh, like, go ahead, take Ukraine, because it seems to me that we're never going to get to a point where where it's, you know, it's. We're, we're, yeah, we are going to confront you. Yes, we are going to uh, send these jets. Yes, we might. I, I said to Andrew uh, two weeks ago, I don't understand why America hasn't put 50,000 troops in Poland. Because, again, not not uh, as a preemptive look, this is this is the line, so to speak. I hate that term, the red line. Yeah. But but we're going to make our stand here in Poland. And, well, and, and 50,000 troops in Germany or wherever else, you know, that they can stage troops that are closer to Ukraine, but not in, but not like right there. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier is that, you know, explanation is not only the, is sure. not, not only shouldn't be confused with justification, but it also shouldn't be confused with prescription. Yeah. Right. That, and, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's, it is a very difficult situation. And you can see this frustration on the part of Zelensky himself, right? Yeah. He's, he's like, you know, I, I want the fighter jets. Why can't they send these things in? And the reality of a crisis when you're dealing with a nuclear power, especially one where, and I think the, I think this very much worried a lot of people, but I think it's because they realize she's right about this. But the comments made by Fiona Hill the other day where she said, if you think, Putin's not capable of doing it. He is, right? And I think sure. that that very much is the mentality that a lot of people have because there was a perception. And I'll say I shared this view. So prior to the invasion, I thought there would be an invasion, but I did not think it would be at the scale. I thought sure. it would be more of like a salami tactic of where, okay, you go in and try to take a little bit of maybe he can declare victory, face saving. Hey, look, I got the Eastern provinces. Right. But instead, he goes all in. And I do think that while the troops are being amassed to do that, that still caught people a little bit off guard. And then when you hear his rhetoric, you sit there and you go, wow, I mean, we really, he could be someone who's capable of thinking that it's a good idea to maybe not, he's not going to launch a strategic nuke to like, you know, bomb New York City or something like that. But he could launch a tactical one. He could try to attack Kiev. Right. If they get frustrated, like we can't take this sure. capital, why not nuke it? That's the kind of concern I think they have. And he knows and he knows deep down inside that even if he used a tactical nuke on Kiev, there would no be. I mean, we would not respond by nuking Moscow. I mean, that would be the end. Right. So, I mean, it really does. I mean, this is this is really all about you know, Jerry and I spent a lot of time, Paul, talking about political science in America and the political climate in America and how the pendulum swings back and forth and how old norms get broken and, and new norms get forged. I mean, this is a really, we, Jerry spends a lot of time talking about, for instance, in Congress, the importance of returning to regular order and yeah. how as long as Congress is operating out of regular order, we can't go and solve problems. And I haven't even talked to Jerry about an issue that came up yesterday. You know, uh, <laughs> this uh, omnibus, that's, that's, this that's omnibus right now, right? That's another and, issue. Yeah. But, but, but my point is, my point is, you know, again, you're right. You said this just a minute ago that, that, uh, that uh, international law has as much to do with law as professional wrestling has to do with wrestling. But for somebody like me who has a degree in international relations, it is, 
incredibly disturbing that we are entering what seems to be a new phase where there, we, it really is international lawlessness. And I guess I, I say that by way of asking, I, I think what is probably going to be the final question because we're running short on time. Yeah. But are there any real off ramps for Putin? Is there a is there any any way besides us giving lots of conventional weapons to the Ukrainians that do help drive him out? I mean, are there are there any options that that present Putin with an actual off ramp here? So it depends on a few things. First of all, I think that it actually let me let me if you can do some edit if you need to no 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 no, no, this is good because you're wrestling you wrestling with these questions is important so that's no go ahead okay good no i was going to say no it's 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 so tough and here's here's what i've been saying to people is that the off-ramp i'm not sure if there is an off-ramp yeah and the reason why is because first of all if you listen to his rhetoric he he seems very committed to this yeah. idea of conquering or at least controlling Ukraine, if not flat out annexing it. He seems very committed to this idea. And he's a, he has people surrounding him who seem very committed to this idea. And even people who there's like a hope of like, well, there could be a palace coup or something like that. He's done a very good job of kind of positioning sure. himself with his supporters to have people who are going to support him, who are around him and tell him what he wants to hear. So that's that's one thing that makes it difficult to see an off-ramp. The other thing that makes it difficult to see an off-ramp is my concern is that the pressure that we continue to put on Putin economically, militarily, that this could lead him to feeling like he's backed into a corner. Yeah. And when he's backed into a corner, the hope that some people have is he'll say, okay, I'm back to the corner, I give up. Sure. But I just don't see that happening. Instead, I become concerned that he either doubles down this becomes a protracted conflict with no end in sight, which of course is very likely because you know what? That's already what was happening in Eastern sure. Ukraine. They've been fighting sure. for since 2014. But the other option is he feels like he's back then and he takes the more desperate action. Uh, the phrase that's used for this, it's attributed to Bismarck is committing suicide out of fear of death, sure. right? And that there's a concern that if he feels like he's in too desperate of a situation, that's where a tactical nuke gets used. Ugh. That's where an attack on a NATO ally gets used. That's the concern. There you go. Well, listen, um, Jerry, do you have any other questions for our guest? Or uh, I think I, I'd like to have you back on uh, in the near future and, and keep this conversation going. Um, let me, but I appreciate your time. You go, Thank you. What What are you What are you teaching this semester? Just so Just so we know. I just would like to get a feel for what your What your portfolio is like. So the class I'm getting ready to start teaching is uh, one of my favorite graduate courses, and I call it quantitative security. And what it is, is it's, uh, it's a kind of an intellectual history of how we as scholars of international relations use data, quantitative mm. machine readable data to actually study international conflict. I mean, this goes back to the 1920s. Quincy Wright, who was a professor at the University of Chicago, this was after World War I, the, the signing of the Locarno Accords in 1925, which was considered like, oh, this truly is a normalization of relations between Germany and Britain, France, everybody. But the, this led to like, I mean, people received Nobel Peace Prizes for this. There was this whole euphoria about it. And at the University of Chicago, they held a little mini conference where they said, hey, this seems like this could actually be like the ending of war, right? That was the belief. This could be sure. the ending of war. But how would we know that? 
And mm. it was someone like Quincy Wright that sit there and said, well, do we have a list? A list of like all the wars, who fought in them, how many people died, what were the causes? And it was like, no, we, we don't have a list. So he started a whole project called the study of war that wow. they created a huge, they created a list with it. And actually over my shoulder here, you maybe see that big red book. That's actually sure. the book that came out of that project. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, so the point is, is that this is a legacy and that's something that the students learn. They learn how to do this kind of analysis, but they also learn that this analysis was informed with the hope of better understanding how to prevent war in the future. Now, needless to say, we haven't figured that out yet. Sure. Yes. Let me tell you, well, listen, I, I appreciate this. Uh, you're doing great work, uh, Professor yes. Post. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. No, thank care. you. And now it's time for The Bottom Line. The bottom line. Well, Jerry, I mean, so so I, I think he's confirmed things that both you and I have talked about, which sure. is, uh, you know, it is a disturbing place for all of us to be as someone who has spent years studying international relations. This idea of the global order being upended in this way, uh, and there are no good, there are no good choices, only successively less bad ones. And, and again, my bottom line is here. Um, you can't not act out of fear, yeah. right? And it seems to me that the West isn't doing fully, again, short of troops, short of a direct military confrontation. The West, uh, NATO, isn't the UN, is not doing... Uh, uh, all that it should and could do. And I think this, I think it has a counter impact and that is you know, it emboldens Putin more. He knows. And also, and also we send Kamala Harris and she is out of her depth. Without a doubt. Putin it, is watching Joe Biden this week talked about cutting off Russian energy, but he used that announcement, the politic on green energy. Yes. 100%. And, Putin, and, and Putin sees this and he knows that the Americans are unserious. And let me and let that's me, part of the problem. Let me answer because I think there's a there's a corollary here and this helped crystallize my thoughts a great deal. I, I'm going to disagree with you somewhat. I think you have to have a healthy dose of fear anytime you're talking about warfare and especially anytime I'm, you're talking I'm about not the, saying but I'm, I'm saying we're paralyzed by it. Well, yes, and that's and that's the that's, that's the, the problem point, right? Yeah, it, it's it's and that's why I'm saying it's a corollary. It's you can't act just because you can't not act just because you're afraid. Sure, you have to you have to be conscious about this. Um, but I think you are correct in so far as we we laid out one of the th one of the things we wound up doing in this conversation. And I know we spent a lot of time in the last few weeks, folks, talking about this issue, but it is the number one story that's out there. And I think we, you and I have both been trying to get our, our heads wrapped around this thing. I think one of the things that I've come to is that, that certainly precedent dictates that at precedent in terms of paperwork we've signed and in terms of the actions that NATO has taken and the history of NATO uh, indicates that there is an opportunity for NATO to act. Um, and and that and that just we can't just say well NATO nations weren't attacked therefore NATO has no role. Um, I just you know think then we have a whole series of choices that we need to that we need to deal with. Um, I think what our conversation with Professor Post underscored is that that 
Vladimir Putin has been emboldened and he continues to be emboldened by the lack of coherent response or the and the fecklessness response, the fecklessness. Uh, yes. uh, 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 Joe Biden is that word. He's dithering. He's delayed yes. again. When the when Jen Psaki is asked the question, would it not help our efforts to help Ukraine to shut off Russian oil exports and to ramp up uh, domestic uh, uh, production of energy. And her response is, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to be cute here. I'll be flipped. Yeah, no, essentially, essentially her response is, well, if only we had more electric cars. Yes. And, and, and Putin, again, also, Putin's watching what this. Would, what would that do? You right. Know, yeah, goes but, a bit, well, what would that do, Peter? But, but again, know? so, but Putin watches this and he yes. knows that the Americans are unserious. And also given the interference of the Russians and before that, the Soviets and the American green movement and the green movement around the world. Yeah. You know, so he like, knows. See, see, he knows the reason why uh, he can make these threats about nuclear, you know, nuclear war, uh, why he won't pull out until he wants to pull out is because he knows that the and I love this in consultation with our allies. Let me say something here. Our allies don't matter. It, it, we, let's just tell the truth. It doesn't matter what the but, Germans but Jerry, do. And, and hold on. It, do, it doesn't. Let me put a, let me put a finer a finer point on. All this right. Because you 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 you're, you know, here's the reality, right? Yeah. If if the Americas are not if the Americas if America is not going to be the global leader on this, and right. we're not saying that America needs to be the world's policeman, or we may be saying no. that America needs to be, but it's a separate issue. Hold on for a second. Yeah. Let me, let me make my point. My point is, absent American leadership, yes. somebody on the European continent should step in there. Now, we've seen it happen before with England. England certainly step in there, stepping in there and doing things, Great Britain doing things that America is unwilling to do. But it seems that, you know, one of the other things that Russia did was make Western Europe so dependent upon Russia oil, Russian, Russian oil, that they are afraid to sort of take on that leadership role if America won't step into it. And that also is a dangerous place for the world to be in. Um, and it means that America needs to step up and, and, and do this. It is, listen, I mean, for me, in the, in, in the interim, we need to keep sending the advanced weaponry and we need to find a way to get the Ukrainian but, Air Force jets. But, but, but here, here, here's the problem, right? Look at um, the UK. It has a standing army of less than 200,000. Look at the Poles. And I think the Poles, the Polish people are probably one that Russia wouldn't want to mess with. But even there, 62,000 uh, uh, men and women under arms. My point is this. And uh, Guy Shepard, who's been a guest on our podcast, sure. has a piece at Spectator World right now. It's called Davos Man. And what has happened is Europe has just given up. And this is one of the tensions mm. during the Trump administration where, 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 where Trump, uh, Donald Trump uh, said to the Germans and the Italians and the UK and the rest, you got to you pay your fair share in terms yes. of, of armaments and, and military uh, defense. And I guess at the, at the end of the day, but again, bottom line, when this is over, and to the extent that it will be over, sure. We have to reevaluate NATO. No, no, number one. I, number two, yeah. I don't think I, I and again, I don't think this would provoke nuclear war. Russia has to be excluded 
from the international community. Sure. Uh, shut off uh, in terms of, 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 of economics, but also you're out of the Olympic Games. You're off the, you're off the uh, Security Council. The, uh, I, I, outside of that, are, are we going to do the same thing that America did, the world did in 2014, where Russia rolls in, takes uh, Crimea, uh, and then uh, we say we're not going to stand for this in sanctions and uh, a pariah, Putin's a pariah, and then just go back to normal again. No, well, and that's just it. That's, and I guess we, that was a question we should have asked uh, uh, Professor Post. We'll get him back and we'll ask him that question. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I think in the end right now, you know, we talk, I don't want to sort of get buried in the weeds here, but, you know, we are seeing what the Russian army can do or, or not do against uh, of, of, uh, even an ill-trained force that is armed with technologically advanced weapons. Give them the um, planes. I, yeah, again, I, I don't understand. Give them the planes. Or Let find them to, or find a way know, to get them. The place. We're not going to go there. Exactly we're it. not going to go there and fight for them. Uh, but we are we are not giving them the tools to fight well, it's, with it, which it to comes, fight. It comes down or, or find a way. I mean, right. Again, it comes down to, Af, you know, what we were able to do against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And we changed that. We changed the tide of that battle. Now, it took a long time, but we were also slow to, to get involved in it. And I think the time frames are different here. Listen, Jerry, because we are. We I know it's so, yeah. all sorts of stuff, um, but that was that was good. Uh, what it else? Good. What that, else was, that, that was a lot of fun. In fact, this is uh, this is our first podcast. And again, what, what number is this? It's 11, 11, uh, where where I really kind of felt that we were doing kind of a Joe Rogan thing here where I, we just I let agree. the conversation go ask questions and I, I, I like it i i you know this is uh, number 11 is my favorite finding finding that balance between the weedy stuff and the 30,000 30,000 sure, foot stuff sure. which is what we wanted what else you got going on jerry you're on on sunday uh i'll be the jerry rogers show over at wbal which sunday it's jerry i'll be on sunday um i'm going to have brian darling on and talk about ukraine i'm going to have um uh one of his last appearances uh, for the media jolt uh dan gainer uh, mm -hmm. Did you hear the news? No. Dan, Dan uh, Gaynor uh, is leaving the Media Research Center. Wow. Do we know and what so, he's doing yet? Uh, not yet, but um, but I know that he's he's done a um, uh, for 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 a, over a year now. He's been uh, giving my listeners at WBAL a a, a media update, sure. and then I, I'm going to have uh, Guy Shepard on. Oh, good. And I'm going to ask him about his piece. Davos man guy, and and, and, and Shepard getting up early on a Sunday morning yeah and again for our <laughs> listeners go go check out this piece it's over at American I'm sorry spectator world uh it's called Davos man oh. it talks about how how the Europeans need to take more responsibility uh for their mutual uh defense and push back on Putin now I am appearing on squared off tomorrow. Uh, it'll be up at squaredoff.net uh, tomorrow afternoon, evening time. Those, those links will be up as well. Uh, excited about that. Um, uh, Jerry, uh, well, folks need to plant their feet, don't they? Indeed. Uh, find the truth, <laughs> find the truth, plant your feet, stand firm. I love stand it. Stand firm, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Have fun and stay safe.